I'm going to read one extra verse, Luke chapter 19, verse 40. Remember the earlier verse says, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. That's the text. Now we'll read in John chapter 19, beginning at verse 17. They took Jesus, therefore, and went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw uh, his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who is seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices 
as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus. Thank you for the humility of our Lord Jesus, for his submission to you to bear the burden of our sins and the shame and the guilt and all of the things which belong to us. Thank you that uh, that we can trust in him and have forgiveness of sins. Thank you for his resurrection and for the, the sign of your approval of his sacrificial work. If there's anyone here this morning who is not yet personally trusted in Christ for their salvation, we pray that you might open their hearts and their eyes to the gospel. Pray that you be with Tom as he proclaims your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It is finished. It is finished. We come this morning to John's narrative of the event that Christians all over the world will commemorate this coming Friday. It is the event which is the centerpiece of all of human history. It is the one act of perfect obedience that stands alone among all the works ever done in all of God's creation as the one and only work that saves lost sinners. To make sure that we understand the incomparable power and importance of this one event, and of its singular role in history, John the Apostle very intentionally takes us back in time. He sets before us six declarations about Jesus, which span the Old Testament Scriptures all the way from Moses to the later prophets who wrote nearly a thousand years after Moses. As John recounts, What happened on the day of Jesus' death, he's very careful to show us that all of the Old Testament prophets pointed forward to this very king and to this very death. The crucifixion of Jesus is the culmination of God's perfect plan to redeem a people from slavery to sin to be His own treasured possession. Forever. The first prophetic declaration to which John draws our attention is also the most wonderfully ironic. Pontius Pilate himself, the pagan Roman governor of Judea, now becomes God's own mouthpiece to identify Jesus of Nazareth as the promised king in the line of David, foretold by the prophets of Israel and Judah for hundreds of years. On that Friday morning, Pilate resolved to have the last word with the very annoying Jews with him, whom he had been butting heads for a long time. On the plaque that he attached to Jesus' cross, which was supposed to be the declaration of accusations against Jesus that would justify his crucifixion, Pilate wrote these words, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. 
Now, Pilate didn't believe that Jesus was the king of anything. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says that if the rulers of this age had understood the mystery that was unfolding right before their eyes, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Pilate just wanted to mess with the Jewish leaders who had forced his hand to order this execution. The plaque that Pilate tacked to the cross of Jesus made them furious. They demanded that he change it to read, He said, I am king of the Jews. But Pilate said to them, What I have written, I have written. Now here's the marvelous irony, beloved. Just as with the words of Caiaphas in chapter 11, Caiaphas the high priest, God was once again using an unbelieving leader in a prophetic role to proclaim a true thing about Jesus that the speaker himself neither understood nor believed. Through Caiaphas, the high priest, God had decreed back in chapter 11, it is expedient for you, Israel, that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not die. Caiaphas meant something entirely different by those words than God did. (laughs) But guess whose meaning won the day? Now Pilate publicly declared Jesus, the Nazarene, to be the king of the Jews. And so he was. And so he is. This declaration by Pontius Pilate sends us directly back to chapter 1 of this gospel. When Jesus first began calling his disciples to follow him, one of the first two men was a man named Andrew who was the brother of a man named Simon, who Jesus later renamed Peter. Simon ran to his brother and he said, he said, brother, we've found the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one. Right after that, Jesus called another disciple named Philip. And Philip ran to his friend Nathaniel and He said to Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, Moses in the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Well, Nathanael at first was very skeptical and he took some convincing, but Jesus convinced him by a miracle of knowledge of Nathanael's heart. And Nathanael finally came around and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Scores of Old Testament prophecies had spoken of God's Messiah, the promised king in the line of David who would reign not only over Israel, but over all of the nations of the earth in perfect righteousness and justice. I want to show you what one particular uh, well-known psalm said, and then I want you to see what the early Christians declared about that psalm's connection with this king on this day that John records in chapter 19. Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His anointed. Literally, the word is Mashiach, Messiah. 
saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, but as for me, I've installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. Zion is Jerusalem. And then he says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten. At that point, it's Messiah who's speaking. Ask of me, I'll give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. In Acts chapter 4, when the believers in Jerusalem were being persecuted by the very same Jewish authorities that had crucified Jesus, they found great encouragement in that very same Psalm of David. Here's what they said. They lifted their voices up to God with one accord and they said, O Lord, it is You who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, Your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile, vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. And then listen to what they said. They said, for truly in this city, Jerusalem, (laughs) there were gathered together against Your holy servant whom You anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. See, the believers in Jerusalem understood that that psalm, written a thousand years before Jesus came to earth and fulfilled it, was about these rulers who counseled together on this day against this king to accomplish this death. Now I want to say that's not the only fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2. In fact, you can go all the way to Revelation 20 and you'll find yet another fulfillment. Uh, there, are, there are a few but this is, uh, this is a very powerful prophecy about Jesus the Nazarene, the King of Israel. He's the one who fulfills this prophecy entirely. Pilate wrote those words, but Yahweh decreed those words. Jesus the Nazarene, the King of Israel. The second ancient declaration about Jesus, in fact, about the crucifixion of Jesus that John records for us, is from Psalm 22, verse 18 which also is a psalm of David. All four Gospels mention the fulfillment of this prophecy. The verse that, that John cites simply says, they divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. The Roman soldiers divided Jesus' outer garments among them, but, but the, the inner garment, the long tunic or robe was was formed out of one piece of cloth with no seams. John tells us that right here. If they tore it into pieces, they would have been taking a valuable garment and making it worthless. So instead, they cast lots to see which of them would get to walk away with it. Can you imagine 
profiting from the sale of a piece of clothing or even wearing a piece of clothing that you had personally removed from a man who was about to be executed. And what if that man was the Son of God? You and I are no better than those soldiers. At every turn, both Jews and Gentiles piled proof upon proof on that momentous day of their desperate need for the very death that they now believed they were bringing about. Brother Steve talked about that this morning. I want to make sure we don't miss the power of this prophecy in Psalm 22. John cites only one verse from Psalm 22. But to any Jew who was in that crowd at at Golgotha, who was familiar with that psalm, that one verse should have triggered a stunned awareness that that entire psalm was being fulfilled before their very eyes. Psalm 22 is one of the many psalms written by King David. I could spend a couple of hours just talking about the importance of that fact, but I'll keep it to one sentence. David was the first king in a line that God promised would culminate in the coming of a king who would rule over the whole earth in perfect righteousness and justice forever. And that psalm, which David wrote a thousand years before Jesus came from heaven to earth, that psalm is entirely about the crucifixion of Jesus that would occur a thousand years after it was written. The very first Words in that psalm are, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried out those words to His Father as He was dying on that cross. In the same psalm, God's suffering servant, God's promised Messiah goes on to say, but I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Matthew tells us that the scribes of the Jews along with the criminals, the scribes and and priests of the Jews along with the criminals being crucified with Jesus, taunted Jesus with that very taunt on the day Jesus was crucified. Matthew says those passing by were hurling abuse at Him, wagging their heads. Phrases right out of Psalm 22, and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. The priests and elders, the criminals said, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. It was mockery. They said he trusts in God. Let him rescue him. If he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In that very same psalm, Psalm 22, 
This one who is calling out to God in horrible grief says to, to the Father, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. He's saying that to his Father. You lay me in the dust of death. And then he says, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And from my clothing, they cast lots. John cites only the last verse of that part of the narrative in Psalm 22. But he's pointing to all of it. Beloved, that psalm is a graphic and detailed prophecy of a public execution in which the victim's hands and feet have been pierced. He is stretched out so that his bones are coming out of joint and he can count his ribs. He's dying of the terrible thirst that comes with loss of much blood after being scourged. His strength is being poured out with every attempt to raise himself up enough, enough to take another breath. This is a prophecy of crucifixion made nearly a thousand years before the corrupt hearts of men had even devised crucifixion as a mode of execution. That ancient prophecy was about this death. Beloved, I don't know how to say it any other way. This is not just another book. Before John continues to add to this stack of ancient prophecies that pointed to this day, he first tells us that Jesus made sure that His mother Mary would be provided for and loved after His departure. As she was standing at the foot of the cross beside John, the author of this, of this Gospel, whom Jesus dearly loved, Jesus said to His mother, Woman, behold your son. And He said to John, Behold your mother. And John tells us that from that very hour, Mary became part of John's own household. That was a loving and gracious provision since Mary had apparently been widowed sometime before Jesus began His earthly ministry. The third ancient prophecy about this day to which John points is from yet another Psalm of David. Psalm 69, verse 21. That psalm, that verse says, they gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. The third prophecy John cites in verses 28 to 30. He says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I am thirsty. Now that didn't mean that Jesus contrived being thirsty. It means that when He said it, He knew He was fulfilling an ancient prophecy. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of that wine upon a branch of hyssop and they brought it up to Jesus' mouth. And therefore, when Jesus had received the, the, the sour wine, He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
Jesus had been on that cross only a few hours when He breathed His last breath. That was very, very unusual. Many criminals clung to life for most of two full days when they were crucified. Some preachers and writers assume that the reason Jesus didn't last but a few hours on the cross was because He had been so badly beaten and had lost so much blood. But beloved, Jesus gave us the reason that He didn't stay alive on that cross longer than He did. He knew exactly at what moment He was going to die. In John 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves Me, because I lay down My life so that I may take it again. He said, No one has taken it away from Me, but I lay it down on My own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. I'm convinced the reason Jesus didn't cling to His earthly life longer than a few hours because, was because He intended to make it clear that no man would take His life from Him. The Jews were about to force the issue because they wanted those three bodies off the crosses before the Sabbath started just a few hours later that evening at twilight. They didn't mind crucifying the Lord of glory, but they didn't want to mess with their holy day. But Jesus beat them to the punch. He alone could lay His life down to pay our debt to God and He alone would take it back up at His resurrection on the third day. See, it was not the plan of the Jews or of the Romans that was being carried out that day. It was the eternal decree of Almighty God. In verses 31 to 37, John tells us that the Jews convinced Pilate to have his soldiers break the legs of the three crucified criminals to hasten their deaths. With their legs shattered, they would be completely unable to lift themselves up sufficiently so that their diaphragm would work to take another breath and they would very quickly pass away. But way back in Exodus chapter 12, God had commanded that not one bone of the Passover lamb was to be broken. And friends, this was the Passover lamb. This was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And no man would be allowed to diminish the purity of that perfect sacrifice. And yet another psalm of, of David, King David claims a promise that would be fulfilled by this perfect King. Psalm 34, verses 19 and 20, He said, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. So John now tells us that after the soldiers broke the legs of the first criminal, they came to Jesus and saw that He was already dead. So they did not break His legs. They pierced his side with a spear and blood and water came out proving that his, his heart had been pierced. But he was already dead. 
the fifth prophetic utterance that John cites, which in ages past pointed to this day, is from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. A prophecy made about 500 years after King David and about 500 years before Jesus came to earth. A prophecy made toward the end of the period of the Old Testament prophets. Zechariah's prophecy looked forward to a day when God's people Israel would look upon the crucified Messiah whom they had pierced and they would mourn over Him as one mourns the death of a firstborn son. Again, I believe that the the final fulfillment of that prophecy is yet future. But for some in Israel, that first Good Friday was the day of their mourning over the one whom they had pierced. Men like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and the disciples who were all Jews and the women who had been with Jesus during His earthly ministry and were there at the foot of the cross looked upon Him whom they and we have all pierced because of our sin. And by the grace of God, they knew who He was. And they mourned. The final declaration about this day to which John draws our attention doesn't come in the form of a direct citation from a particular Old Testament passage, but it most certainly fulfills the word of the prophets. In the great passage about the suffering servant of God in Isaiah 52.13-53.12, to right after that passage speaks of the humiliation and suffering and death in our place to pay the penalty for our sin that Messiah was going to bear upon Himself. Right after it, talk, it, it tells about that death, through Isaiah, God declares... His grave was assigned to be with wicked men, yet with a rich man in His death. Although He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in His mouth. Now in the final verse, final verses of John 19, John tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, a secret disciple of Jesus, came and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Being granted that request, Joseph and Nicodemus, both of whom were members of the very council that had sent Jesus to His death, neither of whom went along with that verdict, took wrappings and spices according to Jewish burial custom, and they prepared the body of Jesus and they laid His body in a garden tomb. Matthew points out that this Joseph was a rich man. He also points out that the grave in which he placed Jesus was his own grave. Luke declares that Joseph of Arimathea was a man who was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now he had met the kingdom of God. Here was one of Jesus' own who received him. While the Jewish nation as a whole did not Jesus' tomb had been assigned to be with wicked men, Isaiah says. With criminals. 
But just as Isaiah wrote 700 years before Jesus came, he was not buried with criminals. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man. A man he had just died to save. Salvation long foretold. Salvation now finished. Why did all four of the Gospel writers, as they recounted the events on this first Good Friday, very intentionally make the same kinds of connections with numerous Old Testament prophecies? They wanted us to know that ever since man's first rebellious act in the Garden of Eden, God had been declaring the universal condemnation of men at the same time that He had been revealing His perfect plan to redeem a people to be His own. That plan of redemption pervades all of the Old Testament Scriptures from beginning to end. And it is finished out in the New Testament Scriptures. And the one work of God that would make that marvelous plan an accomplished reality was the death of Jesus on the cross on this very day that John is telling us about. This is the finishing of our salvation. The impact of that salvation will continue to be worked out until Jesus returns and makes all things new. All things. But every part of that glorious salvation was 100% secured and guaranteed at the cross. My brother Brad Burton loves to say everything that was required for Jesus to save us all the way was finished on that day. For the little bit of time that remains to us this morning, I want us to pitch our tent together right in the middle of the very last word that Jesus uttered on the cross before He gave His Spirit up to His Father. In the Greek, it's just one word. Tetelestai. In English, we render it with three words. It is finished. Friends, in the entire history of all the declarations that have ever come from the lips of human beings, there has never been a more beautiful, more powerful, more world-changing declaration than that one word. To tell us, It is finished. There is nothing that anyone will ever add to the work that Jesus fully completed that day on the cross. Not one thing. It was for that very hour that Jesus came from heaven to earth. It was to that very hour that the prophets had been pointing for countless generations. It is not the obedience of each man and woman and child that can make us righteous and acceptable in, in the eyes of our, our perfectly holy God. All of our efforts at obedience only serve to seal our condemnation. It is only the obedience of the One who is perfect man and perfect God that saves us. It is not many acts of righteousness that give life to dead souls. It's one act 
of righteousness. Romans chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. Paul says, For if by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Is that clear enough? Guys, how many sins did it take to condemn us? One. How many acts of righteousness did it take to save us? One. If not, Paul's lying. You know what? One thing you'll learn about Paul if you spend much time, especially in Romans, is that Paul is scandalously unambiguous. What did it take for God to undo once and for all time the devastating impact of the first rebellious act of the first man? It took one perfectly righteous act of the only perfectly righteous man who ever walked this earth. That death was the perfect act. In 1 Peter 1, Peter calls all of us who believe in and belong to Jesus to live holy lives. He says, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all of your behavior. And he quotes Leviticus 11. It says, I, Yahweh, am holy, so you be holy. And then, listen to this. Peter says, if you address as Father the One who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon this earth. Fear of what? Fear that maybe the living hope that Peter talked about earlier in that first chapter doesn't belong to us? No. That's not the fear he's talking about. Here's the fear he's talking about. Um, let me read that verse and then the verses that come after it. First Peter 1, 17 to 21. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on this earth, knowing that, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. See, he's talking to Christians and he's saying there's something you should fear. Beloved, here's what should make us tremble during the brief time that God has left to us on this earth before His Son returns. 
that we might undervalue the most incomparably valuable thing that has ever touched God's creation. The one thing alone that has the power to redeem everything in God's creation. The blood of Jesus Christ. I fear that my thoughts, my words, my actions might undervalue that blood. How can I not live for the One who loved me so perfectly that He poured out His own life's blood to save me when all I deserved was hell? Just like you, by the way. How can I not love Him and honor Him and proclaim Him and obey Him? The precious atoning blood that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit lovingly conspired to pour out on that first Good Friday. The blood of Jesus Christ is the entire and only qualification that we have to stand before a holy God. It's the only qualification we will ever have and it is all the qualification we will ever need. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Do you trust that person and that promise? Friends, if you are here and you do not, I pray and a whole bunch of other people in this room pray that today will be the day that you receive that gift by faith. There's no other way to have it. Nothing else can or will ever be done to save you because Jesus has already done it all. It is finished. It is finished. Dear Father, the crowds who demanded the crucifixion of Jesus arrogantly called out, His blood be on us and on our children. We can't even comprehend the terrible weight of those words. But Father, You have made those same terrible words precious to us. We call out to You with gratitude that now controls us and we say thank You, Father, that His blood is on us may it be on our children also. And may we, by Your great kindness, escort many to that beautiful fountain filled with Emmanuel's blood to have their sin-stained robes washed purest white in the precious blood of the one and only Savior. In His name, we remember His final word on that cross finished. Amen.